0: All right, everybody, welcome to this other edition of The Compliance Guy. It is Tuesday, April 19th, and that means it's hashtag Terry Tuesday with my great friend Terry Fletcher. Hey, Terry.
1: Good morning, Sean.
0: Hope you had a good Easter. I had a fantastic Easter. I hope you, along with all of our viewers and listeners, uh, had a fantastic Easter weekend, a great Passover and a happy and healthy new year to those of you celebrating Passover. Uh, Again, to each and every single one of you that's logging on, tuning in, and just hanging out with Terry and I for a little while, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate you taking time out of what we know is an extremely busy schedule to spend just a little bit of time with us uh, as we cover a broad range of topics impacting healthcare professionals, coders, billers compliance officers, auditors, healthcare professionals in general. So again, welcome to each and every single one of you, Terry. Welcome again. Today, I know we're going to be talking about the extension of the public health emergency and what this actually means. Because even for me, and I read this stuff on a day in and day out basis, I still have a lot of questions about (laughs) waivers. I have a lot of questions about what it means regarding states who have already ended the public health emergency, why, why did CMS, did you know, um, Becerra, Secretary of Health and Human Services, why did Becerra extend the public health emergency, and what does this actually mean? So, Terry, let me kind of turn it over to you. Thank you. Well, I
1: there was a um, there was a, a an article that was out there that talked about why this was going to be extended. You know, the lawmakers knew it was going to be extended and so on. And I was like, okay, how did they know because a public health emergency has to exist and are we really in a public health emergency right now? Are we closer to the endemic when it comes to uh, where we're at with COVID? Because even some of the variants they're saying, you know, even though they are definitely um, contagious, we're, we know how to treat them. We, our hospital visits are down almost fifty percent. Um, the death toll is not rising at all, like it was, you know, a year ago, even three months. You know, we're we're definitely on the I hate to call it the upswing, but it's never going to be zero. So I don't know what China's doing, but you know, basically, there's always going to be variants, just like the flu. There's always going to be something changing like that. So the right. but there was an article out there. And it was on uh, Fierce Healthcare. And I tell you, Sean, it made my head explode. They said they, and I'll quote, they expect the public health emergency to be extended because lawmakers don't want the telehealth on the agenda for the uh, midterm elections and i just went who would what? say that out loud obviously you and i know you know po- politics plays a role in this but who would put that in writing <laughs>
0: first of all
1: and so oh, that's you know, and, where and, and one of
0: the yeah and uh, one of the things that i saw terry was um a statement that was actually made by um the biden administration that said We expect the pandemic to go well into 2022, even possibly into 2023. And I'm like, wait, what? How do you expect this?
1: You know, these are the same people that said that they expected us to have a a cold, cold death war or something. I don't know. Anyway, getting out of the political side, that's, I think personally, and I'm just giving you a personal opinion based on what I'm seeing out there and what's published. Okay. So obviously if it's published, we can basically talk about it. Um, It's not just our opinion, but um, that's why I think it was extended. But here's what's interesting about this extension. And this is what I think is important for listeners. In the last eight extensions we've had, Those have been status quo, meaning that it was extended. You didn't really have to be too concerned about um, anything you were doing for Medicare, Medicaid, CHIPS patients, you know, the federal public health emergency was extended and the waivers under that extension um, were to continue. And obviously, people are concerned about telehealth. But the waivers extend into something that, into more things, and I think a lot of people are aware of. And some of those things have to do with compliance in nursing homes, um, physicians crossing state lines, and what states are doing as well. And here's something that came up recently, and then I'll throw it to you, Sean, because I know you deal with the the legal aspect of state versus federal all the time. So Medicare published something under their enrollment guidelines. And our good friend David Zetter talks about this a lot, where a lot of physicians, and then just to kind of back up a little bit, they've been treating patients where actually the physicians in their at home and the patient's at home. And is that okay? Well, under the waivers, under the public health emergency, yes, that's okay. But the doctor also, again, there's a separate law that you have to go find that wasn't in the waiver FAQ, where if a physician's going to use a different location, they have to put it on their provider enrollment form. And so sometimes what's in just the announcements, which to me, that's what the FAQ is, isn't always the um, fully encompassed laws or rules. So um, CMS put something out recently, and this was on uh, April 7th, and it was just a nine pager because there were some questions regarding the waivers. Like you said, it's very confusing. And it said public health emergency declaration Q&A, question and answers. And they said, we've been getting questions um, from people saying that, well, just because the public health emergency exists, um, where are some discretionary actions here that we have to be aware of? What I found interesting is they didn't reference the Uh, fee-for-service FAQ COVID list, they basically said, oh, no, this is separate and you need to be aware of it. So they numbered all of the questions, and I'll just bring up two because this is really important to our listeners. One was, can Medicare fee-for-service rules regarding physician's state licensure be waived in an emergency? So Medicare, you'll notice, will never say no. They use what we call CMS speak or Medicare speak to kind of talk around what you ask the question. But bottom line is, is they basically said in order for the physician or physician practitioner to avail him or herself of the waivers under the conditions, the state would also have to waive its licensure requirements either individually or categorically for the type of uh, practice for which the physician or non-physician practitioner in his or her home state practices. Okay, well, how come somebody didn't tell somebody that back in March of 2020? Then it goes on in number 10, and then again, I'll throw it back to you. Does a PAG declaration waive or preempt state licensing requirements for healthcare providers? And then they did say no. They said, no, a PAG declaration does not waive or preempt state licensing requirements. States determine whether and under what circumstances a non-federal healthcare provider is authorized to provide services in the state without state licensure. A lot of providers didn't know this. They said, well, if Medicare says it, then, you know, we can come out of retirement. Or if I'm in um, Florida, I can treat some of my sunbirds that didn't make it down here who are in New Jersey. But according to this document, they're just saying only if you are a federal health care provider and only if you are treating Medicare, Medicaid or you know, SCHIP, CHIP uh, patients. But what about if you're dealing with a United Healthcare or an Aetna patient or somebody who has different insurance? And what if the patient is secondary Medicare? So this is where I think people kind of lose their way, where they, they look at one rule. It's kind of like just looking at CPT, but then not looking at, AAOS, which are orthopedic guidelines, or not looking at ACC, which are cardiology guidelines in my in you know in my universe, which is coding and billing and reimbursement. And right. so it's it's not always one thing to look at. You have to do your due diligence and figure out, okay, so we've got this update for COVID, and that's why they call the the you know fee for service FAQs COVID fee for service, and then you've got PAG,
0: and they're different. So, so bizarre. So I know one of the things that you and I talk about and, and, and this is a huge topic is telehealth, right? I mean, obviously you've been talking about that right. and you know, the telehealth extension, um, this, this went into, uh, effect. Um, they actually changed the bill a little bit and I'll, kind of share that with you, but it was, um, enacted this year in 2022. It's the omnibus appropriations bill. And in this bill, It includes several telehealth um, extensions. Now, in in, in general, the more liberalized reimbursement rules that have been in place since the beginning of the pandemic actually continue to remain in effect for a period of a total of 151 days, which is approximately five months. Um, After the PHE ends. Right. Yeah. Check my math to make sure 150 days. After the PHE (laughs) ends. That's why they keep extending it. I think they wanted it to go through the end of the year at least. Got it. So again, this allows you know clinicians to continue providing these services for patients using video and audio uh, only technologies, and to continue to be reimbursed for these services under Medicare. Um, again, uh, you know federally qualified health centers also are authorized to provide telehealth services during this PHE uh, extension. Now. I think a couple of things that are important about this. Now, um, we're I'm talking specifically about HR 2471, which is the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2022. Now, they they kind of changed the name of this, and this was introduced by Hakeem Jeffries uh, out of New York. Um, there is an upcoming committee meeting um, at two o'clock. <clears throat> excuse me, on April uh, 21st. Um, actually, I'm lying. I'm lying. There, there, there is the notes that are available from the April twenty-first, twenty twenty-one meeting. I apologize. I I thought that as I was reading this, that um, I was looking at my Congress.gov updates. Um, these are the notes that they're uh, making available. So again, on March fifteenth of twenty twenty-two, this actually became Public Law number one seventeen, one hundred three. So. This is public law. It is critical to understand this. Now, the other aspect of this is um, the question that I asked Terry just a few moments ago. Um, you know, as of March 2022, Terry, there's only 20 states that actually have emergency declarations related to the pandemic in force. Only 20. Right. Correct. And and of those 20 um, they're all set to expire either within one month or two months. Um, so most of them either expired um, in at the you know expired during the month of April or at the end of the month of April they will expire or during the month of May. So the question is, what what does it mean when the federal government has extended the public health emergency if all of the states that supersede it have ended the PHE. So what this means is that only for Medicare,
1: Medicaid, and CHIP patients, which is the the child protection, um, you know, services, that's the only thing it applies to. Anybody that's dealing with commercial plans or anything like that, you have to do your due diligence and find state to state. The other thing they did is there was an update under the Centers for Clinical Standards and Quality uh, Safety and Oversight group where they put out a memorandum summary talking about blanket waivers again. You know, they said yep. under the Corona disease virus public health emergency, they said, oh, by the way, here's some emergency declaration blanket blanket waivers that are specifically going to be, um, I don't want to say, oh, not expiring. I keep trying to say waived. But here's what I found interesting. And this is where I think, again, our listeners need to be need to really be mindful of this. They said, while the waivers of regulatory requirements have provided flexibility in how nursing homes may operate, they also removed the minimum standards for quality that help ensure residents' health and safety are protected. They said, from findings from on-site surveys have revealed significant concerns with resident care that are unrelated to infection control. So now they're finding that basically, you know, waiving some of these things for COVID, has now created all kinds of problems. I mean, perfect example, Sean. How many times have we said enough with the covid already because we've got cancer patients that can't get a can't get into the hospital for their surgery. Yeah. So they talked about it said right in it says right in the in the um in this transmittal. We are concerned that the waiver of certain regulatory requirements has contributed to these outcomes and raises the risk of other issues. Here was an example, and I it actually scared the heck out of me. So, for example, by waiving requirements for training, nurses' aides and paid feeding assistants may not have received the necessary training to help identify and prevent weight loss in patients. So that was a problem because what was one of the contributory factors to COVID? Wait, right? Wait. The, the obesity yeah. thing. Similarly, says CMS waived requirements for physicians and practitioners to perform in person assessments, which may have prevented these individuals from performing an accurate assessment of the residents' clinical needs contributing to depression or pressure ulcers. What? So they're basically was- saying we went ahead and waived this stuff, but now we find in hindsight that patients not only have mental health issues that are stemming up, but pressure ulcers, meaning that were they not even attended to because the doctors and the nurse practitioners and you know um, advanced practice providers didn't come in to make sure in their beds they were moved so that they didn't develop these ulcers. Well,
0: I mean this really it, scares me. It, well, okay. So I'm 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 just going to say it, right? You got to be an idiot to not yeah. recognize re removing the minimum education and training requirements from nurses aides and those who are responsible for ensuring the feeding of patients what the heck was it wasn't going to lead to pro- you got to be an idiot i'm sorry i know right?
1: i just you know, I, I can't even i can't even i mean physician visits okay first of all when a patient is transferred out of the hospital to skilled nursing and long-term long-term nursing facilities They need attention. That's why they're not sent back to their home, to their domicile, not even to assisted living. They need skilled nursing. Skilled. I'm I'm air quoting, you know. And for CMS to waive that requirement, not only of the in-person visits, but of training, I don't care what kind of pandemic we're in. That just that's just stupidity. And and I'm sorry, that's just ridiculous.
0: It it is, and you know, it it raises the question uh, uh, about these. Um, bed sores, right? These these pressure ulcers. You know, I have a group of wound care specialists that reached out to me, and they have stage four pressure ulcers on the safety, oh, man, Right? Unbelievable! Brutally painful. Right? I can only imagine how painful these things are because they're necrotized. Right? So yeah, you you're you're a former nurse, right? Yeah, former practicing nurse. Former, right? right right okay but you still you know do you still, still keep up with your uh nursing i do i my beautiful. license anyway beautiful i i i would i would probably get angry at you if i heard you gave it yeah,
1: up yeah i just don't want anybody to think i'm practicing
0: because i'm not i'm an administrative no no no. i understand that but you still have a bsn yeah i just have a bs degree <laughs> Boy do you ever. <laughs> or I should say a degree in BS. <laughs> Cuz people are going to be like, "Oh, you have a bachelor's of science?" <laughs> Never mind. I you know, and I am caffeinated and fully medicated this morning. Oh my gosh, still going so off the funny. rails, Terry. But, no, but you know, just with
1: the the visual of this whole rule makes me think that these yeah. patients and oh my gosh, my heart just goes out to them were in a skilled nursing facility bed, you know, with sheets over them and nobody yeah. checking on them except telehealth-wise. And so now they're developing these ulcers and sheets are getting stuck to it. And I mean, but, it's but think of this.
0: frightening. Right. No, you're right. But think of this. In, in a skilled nursing facility, a wound care physician cannot go in and actually excise a pressure ulcer right they cannot you know excise all that necrotized um, no the patient has um, to take a surgery right that's right those services can only be performed in an inpatient, inpatient or hospital outpatient yeah. hospital setting they right. can't be performed there's only subcutaneous right they can only um, clean it up basically they can't right. do any can kind can of clean it surgery up. On it. so right. so now you have this extension of the PHE which you know is potentially limiting these patients ability to get into the hospital i mean we're already talking about these pressure ulcers that are very slow healing or some that never heal and you know cms has also published a statement that said you know if if the outcome for a patient is a poor prognosis on their wound healing you know they're not going to authorize the treatment of these through surgical intervention they're only going to authorize you to maintain it and to try to keep the patient comfortable. I mean, this is insane. And 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 these problems are all stemming from the ignorance of how this PHE has been run. It's
1: basically just, I mean,
0: every, we all had to
1: pivot as far as, you know, telehealth and working from home and all that kind of stuff. Right. But this was so compromised. I mean, one of the things that also is, is coming off in the next uh, six, 30 to 60 days is the the 1 hour requirement was uh to be trained on the feeding assistance uh, so they couldn't do a wait, 1 can hour wait you talk
0: about that what, what
1: what yeah cms required modified the requirements regarding required training of paid feeding assistants to allow that training can be one uh, minimum of 1 hour in length and it's like why would you waive something like that they couldn't done that training also through audio and video means to make sure they knew what they were doing. They still had to be there. They waived the training. I'm just like, oh my gosh. So all these types of waivers and just little things, they, CMS waived the requirement to have an outside window or outside door in every sleeping room. So now they doubled up patients too that didn't have that uh, air flowing through. And so you're sitting there going, okay, well, now I'm starting to realize the light bulbs going on of why so many nursing home patients got COVID. There was no ventilation. I'm just just really, it said that this permitted space is not normally used for patient care to be utilized for patient care and quarantine. (laughs) There's reasons that these safeguards were put in to start in nursing homes. So when you've got a pandemic and then you take those Safety guards away. You're. I I just. I'm just not finding the the logic in this. And now they're saying, okay, so this is going to expire in 30 to 60 days. But I mean, who's who's responsible? Who's liable now, Sean? If this comes up, and let's say you're a doctor, and this is where I throw it back to you because now you're you're. Now we're going to go talk about the legal aspect. To me, it's it's now a compliance thing where I want to just, you know, kind of yell from the rooftops. Your listeners are like, okay, Terry's on a roll. Um, but basically, you know, the nursing facilities are following what they're allowed to do. Not that it's best practices, but this is what they were saying. Okay, we're going to waive everything. But let's say you're a physician that's following this patient as your patient. So now what? Are you responsible for some of the detriment to this patient because of those policies?
0: Well, yeah, I, I I would have to think so from a regulatory standpoint. I mean, obviously, you know, I'd love to get a malpractice attorney to opine on some of this, and 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 maybe that's something that you and I could think about for a future, you know, segment sure. as this PHE keeps going on. But I could see some of these things being brought, you know, to the attention of the medical board for medical, you know, for patient abuse or you know abandonment or for you know yeah. negligence or something like that, where I could see. You know, it, it being a pure malpractice issue that's brought against the provider. I mean, I, I would love to get the perspective of of a malpractice attorney. But you know, I was as as you were talking about some of these um these um blanket waivers, right? You mean you mean ranting? I, Thank you for saying talking. <laughs> <you're
1: doing a laughs> I'm ranting a bit.
0: <laughs> I, I sometimes well, you do rant sometimes. The I do I'm funny. ranting. But you know, I was looking at some of these um blanket waivers and let me let me share a couple of these with you and let me get your thoughts on these because as i'm as i'm reading these i'm kind of like i feel my internal thermometer just scorching
1: (laughs) me too you're wondering why i'm so hot this morning i'm like oh my gosh
0: (laughs) so so food and diabetic services okay now we're talking about a patient population diabetes patients that are insulin dependent; those that are on, you know, uh, you know, different types of, uh, you know, prescriptions to control, you know, their their production of insulin, whatever it may be. And this is a blanket waiver, and, and this one I'm kind of amazed by, but not really because it's our government. CMS is waiving the requirement, which requires providers to have a current. Therapeutic Diet Manual approved by a dietitian and medical staff for all medical nursing and food service personnel. These manuals would not need to be maintained when a when a a, a group is at or when a or a location is at surge capacity. These flexibilities may be implemented so long as they are not inconsistent with a state's emergency preparedness pandemic plan, whatever. Okay, so I think that goes back to what you were talking about with the weight loss. These facilities under the blanket waiver, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're not required to have any kind of a manual that provides guidance to their medical staff or their nursing staff. More food nutritional staff on proper nutrition for these people, for diabetic
1: patients that they're charging medical nutrition patients. therapy for. And here's the here's the kicker: under the public health emergency. So if you're on a pan, under a pandemic, wouldn't it be I don't know logical to say that it's more in, that it's it's more important to have that available? I mean, so you know what to do in case you don't have access to, you know, a physician. I think the other thing, did you see under equipment maintenance and fire safety inspections, CMS waived the requirement for on-time preventative maintenance of dialysis machines and ancillary dialysis equipment so they don't have to worry about safety during the pandemic?
0: Yeah. I mean, well, this this one's actually kind of fun. Well, this one's kind of fun. This is nursing services. So... Under, under the blanket waiver, CMS is waiving the requirements which requires nursing staff to develop and keep current a nursing care plan for each patient <laughs> and which requires the hospital to have policies and procedures in place establishing which outpatient departments are not required to have a registered nurse present. These waivers allow nurse, nurses increased time to meet the clinical care needs of each patient and allow for the provision of nursing care to an increased number of patients. If you're a surge location and you're not requiring the nursing staff to develop and keep current a nursing care plan for each patient, how the heck can you focus on the individualized care of that patient if you have rotating nurses and revolving nurses? Yep.
1: Yep, I know. And clinical records. CMS modified the requirement, which required long-term care facilities to provide a resident a copy. So this is the on-site physician, a copy right. of their records within two working days when requested by the. So the residents requesting this, and they're like, "No, we're not doing it." I'm just like, now these flexibilities. Most of the ones Sean and I are talking about, they end in 30 days from uh, April 7th, but then others are 60 days. From April seventh, but to me, why were these put in place, and who's responsible when now it absolutely affects the patient? I mean, to a detriment, where it's it's causing a decline in their current status, health status. Well, I mean, well, I can see them yeah. throwing this on the physician.
0: Yeah. Now this one, th- this one's kind of interesting to me, right? Given, and 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 I'm about to bring up a topic that Terry absolutely is going to. Just not be happy with me for bringing up, but we're we don't have to talk about it. I promise, Terry, we don't have to talk. My, to my it. head's going to explode, isn't it? I'm, it is. <laughs> I'm just going to mention it because I have to. Okay. Now, just take a deep breath, and and when you scream, I know sure where you're, you're going with
1: this. Incident to supervision, probably,
0: right? I'm telling you, you and I are like telepathically connected. <laughs> I somehow. knew where
1: you're going with this.
0: <clears throat> so folks I, I, I usually let terry give me the ideas for hashtag terry tuesday on the compliance guy um because normally when i give them to her she's like hey eh. no <laughs> eh. sean stay in your lane <laughs> i want to stay in my lane i don't want to talk about that crap you know <laughs> and and you know but You kind of opened the door for this one, Terry. Well, this actually,
1: in the context, you're probably going to say something. (laughs) I think this one is funny because it reminds me of Star Wars and um,
0: R2D2. So go ahead, go. Uh, I can't wait to hear this one. All right. So it's physician services under the blanket waiver, okay? And what it says is CMS is waiving the requirements uh, which require that Medicare patients be under the care of a physician. This allows hospitals. To use other practitioners to the fullest extent possible, folks <laughs> the number of audits that are going on right now I know, with this. for incident two and split shared services at the federal government level it's is mind boggling yeah. yet we have a blanket waiver under the public health emergency, which I'm still struggling to understand what now. My good friend Eric Rubenstein, you know, he would say, "Sean, just here. Think about this. Okay, the government has to give a sixty-day wind down. Well, it's sixty to ninety days, and that because they didn't give that wind down for the public health emergency, that's kind of why they're extending it. I'm sorry." You can end a pandemic anytime you anytime want, and I'm not saying anything 60, about yeah Eric. within
1: that 90 day period. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm not saying anything about Eric. Mm-hmm. I agree with him because that's really sort of what the statute said. But you <clears> do know too there's...
1: that the 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 60 day wind down is. Um, they said that they would. What? Well, how did they? My, how did they say it? The last HHS secretary said that's my plan, and then Becerra said on. we're going to try. So it's not it's not a law that they have to do that. That's what they're no. saying will be it's a courtesy
0: yeah I, listen here's the deal this as with everything in healthcare, is politically motivated it's politically driven and i'm just going to yeah, leave it at that. that y'all can draw your own conclusions on you know where it's going again i sit right in the middle of the road so don't call me you know a, you know a, a right-wing conspiracy theorist i to the right of Sean, just so you know <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing okay you know you you have these waivers that are put out there and these you know these hospital administrators look at this and they go okay so we can continue to utilize our non physician practitioners we can use our rds we can use our np's our pas uh we can use our crnas because they're not required to be under the um supervision um of an anesthesiologist right, right. but yet then you have cms coming out and targeting all of these hospitals, all of these physician practices for violation of incident two or to split shared services guidelines. I mean, give me a break.
1: Well, the thing that I didn't understand, and this is where my, my star Wars and I've never seen a star Wars movie, but I rode the, what? I rode the star tours at Disneyland many times. So this is what it reminds me of. So, you know, R2D2 and CP3O, right? Those little machines that walk around talking everything. Oh, see, see, I'm totally not Star Wars. Star <laughs> Wars. A Star so Wars I'm, a, I'm a Trekkie, so I'm I'm more I'm more Captain Kirk. But anyway, live and be prosperous. <laughs> exactly, but anyway, so when they came out and said you can um, do, you can supervise under Incident Two via telecommunications, it took me a minute to wrap my head around that. I'm like, what? the How do you do that? Yeah. Because Incident Two in the office setting means that there's a doctor in clinic that you can call out, I call it within yelling distance, at any time you need their assistance, but they don't necessarily see the patient. They initiated the treatment, and then the mid-level provider sees the patient and follows their treatment plan. Well, when you do this from, let's say, a a telecommunication or telemedicine, it's not telehealth right now, now I'm talking telemedicine because the doctor is actually not there. So telecommunication, what are they going to do? Are they going to take an iPad and attach it to, C three po or C P three <laughs> o, attach it to one of these, you know, um, outer space machines and and roll it around the office when your mid level is is seeing the patient while your your doctor's at home, you know, watching cooking shows. I mean, how does this work here? I, I'm trying to figure out what is the what is the mindset on that. So I actually went to a couple practices. Okay, masked up said i can I want to see your incident too because they're very adamant about keeping it. I don't like incident two I'd like it to be thrown out the window but it Absolutely. is it exists so there it is so I went to a couple offices and they actually had on different devices and iPads their physician that was available and they basically were um providing they were doing paperwork from home, but they were going to different um they were available to to be there if they needed to go into different offices. And I'm like, well, you've got a problem. And they're like, why? I said, well, under the incident two rule, even though it says under the public health emergency, they can do it telecommunication. If you go back to the original Incident two rule, which is, I think this is where Medicare is going to nail the doctors right now. You cannot be available in administrative purposes only. When you're there under incident two, you have to be the, a treating provider. That's why they allow anybody in your group practice with the same specialty to be able to be that supervising physician if that patient's physician's not there because they're also treating patients. But if a doctor comes in on their day off and they're just doing paperwork, they are not considered the supervising physician. You have to be in a treating capacity. So any doctors who are at home going, oh, I'll just, you know, hang out at home and it's my day for my kids to be homeschooled today. So I'm going to do that. I'm not saying that's not what's going on. I'm just saying it's not right. reg- regulatory here. Right. You're, you're not following the incident two rules. So. This this is where Sean steps in, you guys. So one of the things Sean and I have, have bantered back and forth about is I I like to play offense. I like to make sure that we do things right the first time so that you don't have to call people like Sean or Eric Rubenstein or, the, or you know, these people that have to find that loophole or that, you know, perfect letter of the law to bail you out. And I think you're going to have a lot of work next year and this year because you're going to have to find those areas where there's that technicality for that doctor to, to try to get by. And I don't, I don't envy you at all, Sean, because there's a lot yeah. of things that are going to be thrown at these physicians regarding CMS's mistakes, in my opinion. And I know CMS is going to hate me for saying that, but they just, yeah. didn't, they just didn't take their time to figure this out. And I think they just set up doctors because you know that they keep saying when they acted in if they act in bad faith or if they act in good faith they're fine. Well, they never gave a definition of what that means, so it's their definition.
0: Yeah, well, of course, because they can they can create a narrative to fit a suspected or potential violation. I mean, that's that fits what they want
1: because they need money back because they're pushing out so much money.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's all about preserving the the trust fund. But you know, look, I, I wish more providers would be proactive. I really do. Um, you know, uh, because from from a defense side, right, when I have to get involved with law firms and we have to start looking at strategic litigation defense options, it's very complex and it's very expensive, okay? Yes. Um, you know, Terry, th- this will blow your mind. Um, I was going through my, so we keep these, um, I don't even know what they call it. It's called Sean's projects. (laughs) Um, my, my staff try to keep things very, very simple for me. Okay. So they just call it Sean's projects. I'm sure it has some big, long, fancy internal name that they just decided don't even bother telling Sean because he's never going to remember the acronym. So just call it Sean's projects. (laughs) So smart people. <laughs> yeah, I well, you know that's the key to success. I am of average, and sometimes my wife will tell you below average intelligence, which is why I absolutely always surround myself with people who are far more superior in intellect and knowledge than me. Hence, the reason why I let you kind of drive what the topics of the shows are going to be because mine are so poorly selected. But <laughs> <laughs> just to give you an idea, Terry. Um, we just went through my tracker last week, okay? I have fifty five zero. I have fifty litigation projects going on right now that are active, okay? Of the fifty, only fifteen of them are carryovers from twenty twenty one That means so far, in the first three and a half months, of 2022, 35 litigation projects, these are either civil, criminal, or administrative, are now on my desk actively being worked with my team to try to figure out how we defend these hospitals, health systems, physician practices, individual practitioners, Individual auditors, coders, billers. And let me tell you something, these are all of the 35 from 2022, these are all resulting in services rendered during the public health emergency. It doesn't
1: surprise me. It, you know, and I think that where you're going to probably run into an issue because you're dealing now passed the audit legals right. Now, now there's, now there's a claim against the physician. Is that accurate? Is that That's true? Right. Yeah. So when I deal it from deal with it from an auditing perspective, I probably have to do similar things that you do. So I get, you know, commercial and, and Medicare payers come to me and they say, okay, again, during the public health emergency, it's almost like they forgot pre pandemic. And they're just like, we have this provider or this group doing this. I have five screens up. I've got every possible declaration waiver, you know, uh, contract stipulation, and then I have to label them on when they were effective, when they weren't effective, what the state said at this point, what the government said, just to try to find any kind of window where maybe the doctor had a an option that this was accurate. And it is a nightmare because nobody's consistent. There's, there's not a, there's not a, um, I guess a a blanket, I hate to call it a waiver, but just a, a way to, to look at it saying, yes, this is accurate. It's like, well, on April 2nd, this might've been okay, but on May 15th, this wasn't okay. And I actually feel for a lot of, you know, probably people that are in your client base right now that you're dealing with, because I would bet that you have a very high percentage Where, and we always say, Sean and I are like, you you know, you can't say that you didn't know, but I would say that they probably didn't know that something expired or no longer applied or that payer didn't do that or whatever. I I have a feeling. And here's the other thing. Have you run up against that? And this is wrong on on every platform. Have you run up against a, a MAC carrier that conflicts with the national policy? I'm just oh, like all the time.
0: what the, the heck time. is that? I mean, well, at least
1: have your yeah. in your, you know, if you're CMS, have your minions do what you're supposed to do.
0: Well, yeah. So in 2014, CM uh the Office of Inspector General actually released a report um called um oh boy. It, it's a 2014 report with identification of variant a high rate of variances from Mac to MAC on local coverage determinations. And I've talked a lot in recent weeks on different podcasts about the critical importance of Azar via Lina Health Systems, which went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court came out and said, if you have an LCD that's not been put through the formal rulemaking process, whereby it's been open to a 60-day comment period, then it amounts to a de facto guidance document and it is not law. So to your point, you know, an NCD, let's just make sure everybody, we're all on the same page, right? An NCD is a national coverage determination. And those are released by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services at, out of Baltimore. Those are typically promulgated into the law, meaning they've gone through a formal rulemaking process. LCDs, for the most part, these are created by the local Uh, uh, the, the, the regional max, right, in the different jurisdictions. And what's so amazing to me is that you can have a provider who has a practice in New Jersey and they have one in Pennsylvania and you literally put your foot across the state lines and that provider could literally have two different LCDs to follow. One telling them that these are your limitations for coverage and this is what establishes medical necessity. And the other one having something completely different or being void of anything it's absolutely so to your point yes I have a lot of clients that especially um, in the telehealth arena where these uh, TPE audits are taking place yeah. um a lot of clients are saying Sean we've done everything we can to keep up with this stuff but you know our state expired you know now the federal government is saying they're extending it What does that mean? And I have to give them the same explanation that you gave just a little while ago when we started, which is the federal means that it is applicable to all federal government programs. Anything through a commercial payer, you're on your own. You got to work it out with the commercial payers.
1: Well, and somebody said, what about the uh, Medicare Advantage plans? I said, well, here's where you get a, you're going to get a limbo answer to that. So it should apply. To Medicare Advantage, but Medicare Advantage is kind of a Medicare group insurance plan. So they also have their own individual contracts. So you actually have to double verify what they're covering. Um, It's not just blanket Medicare. Then you have to go into the contract that you signed with that Advantage plan to be a provider for them and figure out if they have waived it under their commercial option. And so people are like, wait, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, unfortunately, you're right, it doesn't. They're, they're a Medicare Advantage plan. There's a reason people sign up for these because they have the flexibility that Medicare doesn't always have. I like right. Medicare personally because it's just so black and white. Every other plan is, well, how we feel
0: this day and what well, we want. I don't know. know that they're black and white, Terry. Well, they're There's closer than of,
1: some plans.
0: They are. There's a they're lot of shades closer. of gray with me, <laughs>
1: with Medicare. Let's say you can, how about if you can find their written response to things easier than you can on some of the, you know, PPOs. Agree, and, you know. agree a thousand yeah. percent with it. Yeah. Agree the, a thousand I can usually percent. find what I'm looking for with them more than I can on a commercial plan. Agree but i think that that for our listeners just to kind of to wrap up our thoughts on yep. this what we what we're trying to bring to your attention is that just because the waiver has been extended under the then we're talking about the public health emergency 1135 waivers under the original cares act and then it was updated with the omnibus act and then as we alluded to there was also a 2022 consolidated appropriations act so there's been tag-ons to the original waivers the public health emergency, the original waivers for Medicare and Medicaid patients, that has been extended for 90 days. But there's also been waivers that have been expired that relate to long-term care facilities or going to expire in the next 30 to 60 days and skilled nursing facilities. Make sure you're reading up on that. Second, once the public health emergency expires, and right now I'm hearing that it, it I don't think they're going to renew it again, but that's going to be around July 16th. Once that expires, the telehealth um, extension is what was part of that 151 days. No other waivers, just the telehealth. That actually, under the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2022, those are extended 151 days. And Sean's right, that's approximately about uh, five months. And that takes us, from my calculations, till about December 15th. And so and the reason for that is so that CMS and, and OIG and HHS they have to come up with reports on, on doing due diligence to figure out if telehealth in all aspects of under the waivers was effective, was, and here's where MedPAC gets involved too, was cost effective, which we know it wasn't. So we know they're going to chime in on that. And should these waivers be permanent? And we just know, unfortunately, we have to say it. After the midterms towards December, we'll find out what actually is going to happen, because as soon as politics aside starts to wind down, then reality sets in on what we can actually afford. And so um, one thing that is permanent, and this is really important, these two things are permanent, and this became permanent under the final rule. And it is behavioral health and mental health services. Now, we're not talking office visits. We're talking the therapies for those behavioral health services. Those will continue to be um, covered, regardless of a pandemic or not, or PHE or not, under the audio only or audio and video. So those can be done either way. Second, um, they're also saying that supervision for testing, stress tests, uh, anything that used to be under direct supervision, now can be done via... Uh, general supervision. I don't agree with that, but okay. That's what that, they just put that under permanent. And then the last thing is make sure that you uh, check with not only your liability insurance, but also check with your malpractice carrier and check with your state and just, you know, call your, call a healthcare attorney in your state and ask them if your physician who's licensed in your state can see patients out of state irrespective of what the government says, because for Medicare, it's sort of okay. It means that Medicare has said, yes, you can, but the Medicare under that uh, seven page PHE thing that was separate from COVID, they're saying that you, they can't waive anything if the state says they can't. And I think, and actually a, a light bulb just went, went off on me, Sean. I'm thinking that the reason they didn't attach that um, that alert on April 7th to the COVID FAQs for for fee-for-service is because that just has to do with COVID. So let's just say that um, the COVID pandemic, let's say that you do have a physician that's in Florida wanting to see a patient in New York, and it's COVID-related. I would say that that's going to be no problem. If they're doing a telehealth visit, I would think legally you're fine. But then they because they pulled it out, let's say they need to talk to somebody who's got stage three cancer, and they need to talk to them about what their next step is for chemo and everything. And they wanted a specialist that was in New York, but that doctor's not licensed in New York. I think you're going to have a problem if your state has expired, like Florida did. And I, I pick on Florida because almost all of their waivers have expired. Absolutely. Um, I think you're going to have a problem getting that covered, even if it was a Medicare patient, because it's not on the COVID fee for service list. Is my thinking about right on that, you think? I think you are. Okay, now I'm kind of, as you talk through it, sometimes a light bulb goes off. I'm thinking that's why they separated it.
0: It, it, You could, you very
1: well could be right. So I'm just thinking that maybe they're like, well, we want to, you know, they they keep now saying things like even when a PHE doesn't exist, even when the pandemic is here. So now they're starting to separate themselves from the PHE. And I think we're going to start seeing that. That's what the Consolidation uh, Act did. They basically are saying we're trying to figure out does telehealth once the PHE ends really have a place. And yes, it does, but not for everything. Right now we're a free-for-all, and that's what they need to, to figure out if that's accurate. So now that I think about it, um, when they talked about in that document, again, about um, crossing state lines and, you know, what is accurate as far as licensure when you're, it's, you're not in your own state, I actually think they're talking about anything that doesn't relate to COVID. So they didn't say that, but that's my mindset here now, what I'm thinking.
0: I think you're right. I do. Otherwise, they would have included it on the waivers. You would think so. You would think so. Definitely. So that's it for me. That's what I got. (laughs) Well, All right. Well, I don't have anything else of value that I could add. I mean, I could probably make some things up, but I'm going to spare everybody (laughs) the headache of me doing that. All right, Terry, uh, I think this was another awesome episode. As always, um, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your very busy schedule to hang out with me and our listeners on tuesday's uh segments these have become such a popular um segment with um the tcg um viewers and subscribers so uh thank you so much to you for continuing to help me push this uh, podcast forward and um for your continued friendship uh it's it's Such uh, it's such a blast doing this with you every week. Thank
1: you. I really appreciate being here. And just real quick to our listeners, if you hear Sean and I rant about some of these things, we're ranting because as you are, we really care about patients. We want and we care about our providers and we care about our healthcare professionals that are also dealing with some of these legalities and things that are happening. And we just want to make sure that you're also on offense. And if you have to go on defense and defend your position. This is what we're here for. We're trying to explain to you how to do that.
0: Absolutely. All right. As always, I want to say again, thank you to each and every single one of you for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with Terry and I for a little while today. As always, uh, it's a pleasure. And we're going to continue to do these segments each and every single week until y'all tell us to stop, which we hope you don't. But as I say at the end of each and every single episode, thank you all so much. Remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. And until next time, take care.